0: Sometimes it can be a challenge to discern God's will, what God is, how God is directing, how God uh, is speaking into our lives and, and how to respond. Uh, I heard of one person who had uh, a, a struggle in this, in this regard in a, uh, an unusual place. He was ice fishing for the first time and he went out ice fishing and, and he was alone so he had a lot of Uh, of excitement first time he's doing this he's looking forward to it but also some nervousness because never done it before he was there on his own and he uh, cut the hole in the ice and had his uh, stool he got his line ready and as he was lowering his line into uh, the hole that he'd cut in his ice he heard this loud booming voice and the voice said there are no fish under the ice and He looked around, he was puzzled because he thought he was all alone on the ice and there wasn't anybody else and and, uh, didn't know what to make of it, but he decided he would just move locations and try again. So he went to a different location on the ice, cut another hole, set up his stool, got his, his line, lowering it into the hole, and he hears that voice again. There's no fish under the ice. And at that point he's kind of freaking out, right? He doesn't know what is he can't see the voice, he can't doesn't know where it's coming from. And finally he just looks up to the sky above him and says, "God, is that you? Is that your voice?" And then he hears the voice again. And it says, "No, this is the rink manager. There are no fish under the ice." <laughs> now we have difficulties like that he had a particular difficulty but we can have the same kind of difficulty in discerning is this the voice of God that I'm hearing or is this just the voice of people that uh, that is uh, speaking into me right now we can have that problem but we can also have the other problem he faced in that when we do hear the voice of God when God does try to get our attention we aren't always such good listeners uh, we have been in a series uh, where we have been examining this whole topic of prophecy, uh, looking at what, is, what does the Bible say? And we've, we've started in the Old Testament, we've worked our way into the New Testament, looking at prophets and prophecies. What do you do, for instance, when someone comes up to you and they say, God told me to tell you this, what, what do you make of that? What do you, how do you respond to that? What do you, uh, what do, you do with that? Uh, So we've been asking that question and and we come to uh, today's passage and it has to be an important one because it's one uh, of the only uh, clear New Testament examples where a prophet after Pentecost is giving a prophecy and people are hearing and responding to it. And so presumably this would tell us something about um, how we are to understand this, this gift of prophecy and and this role of a prophet in the under the new covenant. Well, we're going to see that and see prophecy in action in this particular passage. But it it also teaches us how to how to discern, how to uh, how how to have a framework for understanding how God could um, work through people in this way, and and also for discerning just the will of God in our lives when God has given us direction. Pro, in, in his word, for instance, how do we respond to that? How do, we, how do we know that we are dealing with the word of God when there are competing voices, when there are other things that would, that would distract us, that would keep us from, uh, from really doing what God asks us to do and to following him into the path that he has called us to? And so if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn with me to Acts chapter 21 Uh, I'm going to read from verses 10 to 14. It's on page 875 in the Pew Bible in the rack in front of you. And if you keep that out in front of you, we're just going to walk verse by verse through that passage and hopefully gain a better understanding, not only of prophecy, uh, but also a better understanding of how we can respond to the will of God when it's revealed to us. Acts chapter 21, verses 10 to 14. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. And Paul answered, What are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart, for I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. This is the word of God. Now, I'd like to start by examining what we can learn from this and what we probably should learn from this about uh, New Testament prophecy. Because there's many people today that say that prophecy in the New Testament is like totally, totally different. It's been transformed for what, what you saw in the Old Testament. Uh, in the New Testament, it's more approximate. It's, it's less detailed and specific. And, and it, it just involves the gist of what God is saying. And there's a lot of interpretation. And so it can kind of get um, mixed up in, in, in some of the details sometimes. For me, this passage teaches me that New Testament prophets revealed the will of God, and they did so authoritatively, did so accurately. They gave words given them by the Holy Spirit. New, so New Testament prophets revealed the will of God. Now in verse 10, a prophet, from, a, a prophet named Agabus came, comes down from Judea, from the area around Jerusalem. And he he comes, and this isn't the first time. He's not a famous prophet. You may not know him very well. He appears twice in the book of Acts, and this is the second time. The first time he appears is in Acts chapter 11. And in verse 18, he predicts that a great famine is coming over uh, the land, and particularly would hit the area known as Judea very hard. Now, that That famine actually came to pass, and the fact that Agabus revealed it in advance enabled uh, the church across the Roman Empire, particularly in areas outside of Judea, it allowed them to prepare, uh, as they did, they prepared financial gifts and offerings to help support the, uh, the believers that were in Jerusalem and in the surrounding area when that famine actually came. It was important for, for that to take place because uh, believers in the first century faced a lot of persecution from, uh, from people uh, in, the, in the Roman world as well as from fellow Jews who didn't respond, didn't believe that Jesus was the promised Messiah. And so we've seen already that, that uh, Agabus has given a, uh, a message. But I want to look at some of the, the details of that. I want you to see how similar Agabus is to the Old Testament prophets. The first reason, first way that he's similar is that he's called a prophet. And that may seem like a very obvious thing, but if you have uh, if you have been exposed to the Old Testament and seen that these people called prophets for hundreds of years have come and revealed the will of God and done so powerfully and authoritatively and and without error, then another person in the New Testament comes along, calls himself a prophet, you're expecting this is probably the same kind of thing. Uh, Here he's not called prophetic. He's not called prophet-ish. He is a prophet. And so we're we're assuming that he's going to be similar to those Old Testament prophets. And as we get into the text, we see he doesn't disappoint. In verse 11, when he sees Paul, he does something dramatic. He uh, goes up to Paul, grabs his belt and then proceeds to take that belt and he'd probably have to get down on the ground for this, but he wraps the belt around his own hands and feet as a way of acting out the message that he's giving. And the message is uh, uh, well, the message is to come, but uh, it, it is a dramatic way of showing what he is also telling. Someone did that to you, you would you would be freaked out. Uh, just, just someone doing something, just wrapping their own hands and, and, and feet in a belt like that would be, would be dramatic. If they took your belt off to do it, that would be even more dramatic. He's, he's got your attention. What I want to note here, though, is that this is a, a, another, another sign that he is operating in very much the same way that we've seen Old Testament prophets act. It's not that they had to do this every time, but often the message that they were given by God was so urgent that God didn't just have them speak it. In, 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 uh, in order to highlight it and almost take a megaphone to their message, they would often have these dramatic things that they did to get the message across, to make it uh, come home to the people that they were trying to deliver it to. And, and so that's what you see him doing here And that's what we see many of the Old Testament prophets doing themselves. So for instance, Jeremiah famously had uh, the Jerusalem leadership in front of him and he took this big uh, uh, pot, uh, a clay pot, and in front of them he smashes it down and then tells them about the coming destruction of Jerusalem. That that, that would punctuate your message if you were going to, to, to communicate such a thing. Some of you know about Ezekiel and ezekiel 's famous bread and, and some people look at the ingredients of, of ezekiel 's bread for some magic uh, health uh, benefits uh, and for our purposes here the the rather memorable aspect of ezekiel 's bread is that he cooked it over human waste, and so that again it was he was acting out a message that he was trying to hit home and Someone brings you some bread that's been cooked over human waste, and that would be make an impression on you. It'd be very memorable. Uh, probably the the winner in the in our Old Testament survey of prophets who have done really strange things would be Isaiah, who quite notoriously uh, spent three years completely naked in order to deliver a message to Israel that they were going to go into exile and they too would be stripped naked by their captors and be humiliated and face the shame of that exile. So when we see Agabus doing something unusual and strange here to hit home his message, we're thinking, boy, it's not like prophets always have to do this, but this seems pretty much the same way that we've, what we've come to expect from Old Testament prophets, it doesn't seem like there has been any big jump in, in uh, the presentation of what uh, prophecy is. Then Agabus opens his mouth to speak. And when he does, he says in, verse 11, it says in verse 11, thus says the Holy Spirit. Now, that sounds familiar to me. If you've read the Old Testament, you know that what the prophet's often did before they spoke was not, I've read this somewhere, I've heard this, a a, a really interesting thought came to me. They didn't say those things. They said, thus says the Lord. And then they would reveal a message from God. Agabus stands up here and he says, thus says the Holy Spirit. That's an important point because there are many people today that Argue New Testament prophecy isn't exactly revealing exactly God's words, it's just kind of the gist of what he wanted to communicate in the prophet's own words, and that's why it's kind of wrong all the time. And, and you know, 65% of the time, that's, that's a pretty good average. Um, one scholar, for instance, says of this passage, Agabus' introductory statement meant nothing more to him than, this is generally or approximately what the Holy Spirit is saying to us. Do you think that's possible? Do you think that it's possible that after hundreds of years of prophets coming to God's people and saying, thus says the Lord, and doing so authoritatively, and if they got the message wrong, or if they combined it with false theology, according to... Deuteronomy 13 and 18 that we saw under Moses' directions, they were to be stoned and rejected as a false prophet. Do you think that after hundreds of years of that, somebody would stand up post-Pentecost and announce to Paul and his his followers, thus says the Lord, and people would say, oh, he's probably just communicating the gist of the message. This is probably just an approximation. It doesn't seem likely to me. And so it, it, it feels to me the most natural way of understanding this is that Agabus has been given a message directly revealed to him by God, commanded to speak, and he speaks it. And he makes it clear, this isn't my message. This is coming from the Lord, and I need you to hear it. His prophecies, both here and, as I mentioned, with the uh, prophecy of the famine in Acts chapter 11.18, they come true. So in verse 11, with Paul looking at this prophet down on the ground, wrapped in a belt, stunned, he, he hears, uh, uh, hears him utter these words. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. This is exactly how Paul will later explain what happened to him when he describes his uh, having been imprisoned and handed over uh, in Acts chapter twenty-eight seventeen, so what Agabus said actually came true. It wasn't it wasn't just an approximation. It was this is a, a message, and this is a fulfillment of that message. For some of you, that may feel like really obvious. Paul, why are you belaboring this point? And I'm doing so for this reason: that there are more and more churches where you will have people that are going around in the congregation um, announcing to one another, I have a message for you from the Lord. And when they say, I have a message for you from the Lord, what they really mean and have been taught to to mean is something vaguely Christian popped into my mind. It might be from the Lord, so I'm going to say, God told me to tell you this, and it comes, and because they've done so, with much more weight and authority and and impact, but not necessarily uh, having been clearly revealed and commanded to be spoken uh, a message as it was here. The problem with that is if we claim God's authority to a message that is not actually coming from the Lord, then we are operating without any accountability. People can say things that have great impact and authority, but without any accountability for whether those things are actually revealed by the Lord and coming to us from him. So for me, Agabus shows me that New Testament prophets revealed the will of God. And they did so accurately and authoritatively. And if they didn't, they would be discerned as false prophets. And so they need to be held to the same standard as Old Testament prophets were. Now, Agabus shows us something about prophecy, and I think that's helpful. It's helpful for those of you who will, at some point, may come across a person. It could could be a preacher. It could be a neighbor. It could be someone in the congregation comes to you and they say, I've got the will of the Lord for you. God has revealed this message, and I need to give it to you. It has some kind of framework there. But even if that never happens to you, I believe Agabus shows us something about our response to God. And particularly, we'll we'll look at Paul's response to the will of God. But before that, I want to look at how the people respond to this revelation of the will of God. And in their response, we see that the voice of comfort often sounds louder than the voice of God. That as God seeks to speak, there are Competing voices that can get in the way. So much so that they can filter out what God is saying and we don't actually hear his voice uh, because we are uh, are so committed to the voice of comfort that his voice doesn't get through. So the voice of comfort often sounds louder than the voice of God. You would think, after what I've described to you, that first of all, Agabus's belt-tying thing, that would have got their attention, right? Then if after the belt tying, he announces, thus says the Holy Spirit, people are going to stand up, take notice, and whatever comes out of his mouth next, boy, we got to fall in line. we got to go with whatever God has revealed. You'd think that that's how people would respond, right? But look how they respond in verse 12. It says, when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. As soon as they hear that pain and difficulty may be involved in this revelation, they don't want any part of it. As soon as they have this sense that there is going to be difficulty in Jerusalem, they assume that the interpretation is, you must be trying to communicate the fact that we should run the other way. And that's what they are telling Paul to do. Uh, they, they have a clarity here, and I believe that clarity is coming from what I'm referring to as the voice of comfort. In verse 13, Paul says, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? They're pleading with Paul not to go. They have a confidence. Doesn't matter how Paul feels about this. They know that the right answer and the thing for him to do go as far away from Jerusalem as you possibly can, even though God has said, when you get to Jerusalem, this is what's going to happen to you. They've determined they can somehow circumvent that, prevent that from happening by running the opposite direction. And so they plead with him to, to uh, turn around and go the other way. Have you ever experienced anything like that? you ever experienced a kind of selective hearing where God might be trying to get your attention, trying to show himself to you, reveal his will to you, and... You are so attuned to this voice of comfort that it's almost that you don't hear what God would have you to do. That that where that plan of God involves difficulty, involves change, involves discomfort, that it's almost like you didn't hear it, that it didn't sink in. That kind of thing happened when Jesus told the disciple that disciples that trouble was waiting for him in Jerusalem, right? Matthew records that Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying far be it from you lord this shall never happen to you It's interesting because Peter liked Jesus he liked his sermons he could listen to Jesus preach like all day long I'm convinced he he followed him he he liked listening to Jesus but as soon as Jesus announced that the path would involve suffering and in this case, even death, he was like, "No way where not only am I not having any part of it, it was at that point he decided that Jesus needed a sermon of his own. He starts rebuking Jesus. And, and you, like you, you have this sense of how off and, and yet how confident Peter is. He's so accustomed to the voice of comfort. That when something that comes that, that opposes that, he he just feels this something welling up inside him that that tells him Jesus needs to be told off here, he needs to be rebuked and sent in his place because surely he's got it wrong. I think we're so accustomed and committed to this voice of comfort that we almost don't question it. We we almost don't even think about it. We just assume this is the the default. Of course. Of course God's will for my life is that I be as comfortable as as possible, that that I live happily ever after, that things just keep going from one level of comfort to the next. As Scripture warns, though, that Satan is often the one behind this voice of comfort. You know that from how Jesus responded to Peter's rebuke, right? He said, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. You're not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of men. Now, you wouldn't soon forget it. If Jesus called you Satan, you know, that would be a fairly direct thing for someone to say. And and, and I just picture Peter like stepping back, you know, and he's, he's just been called Satan by Jesus. But he did it not to just set him in his place or to get his attention. He did it because he wanted him to realize that this voice of comfort that had, had stirred up this sense of, uh, clarity with regard to what he believed to be the God, God's will was actually coming from Satan. Jesus had experienced the same kind of uh, thing, the same voice of comfort uh, that Satan had, had used when he met him in the desert. It was there where Satan said to Jesus, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now, I've been talking about the voice of comfort, but if you have been fasting for 40 days in in the desert, you haven't eaten anything for that length of time, turning stones into bread at that point doesn't sound like the voice of comfort. It sounds like the voice of reason, like... Like, of course you're going to want to eat. Of course you want a loaf of bread. It, it doesn't seem like this, this huge temptation of Satan. Like That seems like, of course, this is God's will. Thank you for reminding me of that. I will cause a miracle and turn these stones into bread. And yet Jesus says no to the temptation. He recognizes it as the voice of Satan because he is submitted to the will of God no matter what happens. Now, if Satan comes with the voice of comfort, maybe you're th- thinking, well, okay, it's Satan. I probably, I've got my guard up. I'm, I prob- this is probably not something I should be listening to. If kind of an immature and somewhat impetuous disciple like Peter comes along and he says the same kind of thing to you, you're like, well, this is Peter. I, he's probably not got the right idea. I can probably... Rebuke him and put him in his place. You know what the really dangerous thing is? The most dangerous version of this, of this voice of comfort, is when the voice of comfort comes disguised from one of God's prophet or one of God's people, one of God's leaders, and they disguise it as the voice of God. And, and that's what's so dangerous about what's happening in our world today, particularly uh, in the church that often people are doing this very thing. They are disguising the voice of comfort as the word of God. So that's what happens today whenever people will say, it is always God's will for you to be healthy. Sickness, you just just rebuke it because God always wants you to be healthy. It's what happens when someone announces to you, of course it's God's will for you to be rich. Why, Why would... Why would God want to withhold his blessings from you? It's that voice of comfort, and it's saying those things that we'd love to hear and attaching the authority of the word of God to it. I wonder, how often have you found yourself facing, for instance, a health challenge? Like, Like a really painful health challenge before you. How many times have you considered... I'm not saying this is what it is. I'm just saying, how many times have you considered maybe it's not God's will to heal me. Maybe maybe this is not something he wants to take away. Or how many times have you found yourself praying for something, not once or twice or three times, but you, you kind of Given yourself to quite a bit of prayer about something, and it hasn't happened, and you're kind of thinking maybe I got this prayer wrong, or maybe God's not hearing, and what's what? Why isn't He listening? How many times have you considered? Maybe the answer is no. God's heard you. There wasn't anything wrong with your prayer. It wasn't. That it wasn't. You didn't pray long enough. He's heard you, and the answer is no. Do you, Is that in your radar? Is is that like one of the options that you consider when you try to interpret what God might be saying? Or is the voice of comfort so strong that you can't even hear those things? You don't even consider those. Of course He wants me to be healthy. Of course he wants me to 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 get that promotion. Of course he wants me to to have a a, a happy life and to have more and to maybe maybe the answer is no. Maybe he wants you to go to Jerusalem and and be bound and imprisoned, and maybe that's part of the plan. But often we don't consider those things. The voice of comfort blocks those kinds of options from us. In in Japan, the pastor who regularly came to, to minister to us would often say, if it feels like it's hard, it's probably because it is hard. And, and he needed to say that to us regularly, and I, I, I will repeat this to you regularly, because we can get so drown the, 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 the voice of comfort can so drown out the will of God and the voice of God, that if something is hard, we're thinking, like, what's gone wrong? This isn't supposed to be this hard. And if, if something's difficult, we're like, does is God not see what's happening? Does he is he asleep at the job? Is is something off course here? Did I do something, wrong? is he mad at me? And the message that we were regularly encouraged by, and it didn't feel like encouragement, but it, it was it was helpful, was if it feels hard, it's probably because it is hard. Like it, it's it's not the fact that that. You, because it's not you're being punished, or God hasn't isn't listening, or God doesn't care. It's that God's will for you in this this season and in this instance, maybe to take you something through something that's very difficult. It's hard, and it's okay that it's hard. But the voice of comfort doesn't want us to think like that. Doesn't want us to even consider that as an option. As a voice of comfort drown out the voice of God in your life? As your certainty about the comfort you think God wants for your life kept you from doing things or saying things or responding to God? As it kept you from from obedience, from serving, from from responding to what God wants from you? I, I have to believe that this voice of comfort is affecting all of us in some way because as I look at our culture... This is, it, it is redefining our culture. Like we as a society have so, are, are so committed to this voice of comfort that when God says something that seems to contradict that, you just see, you just see people's blood boils, right? This, this is what's behind the redefinition of morality in our generation, If something is hard or unpleasant or limiting for me in some way, how dare you tell me that it's wrong? How dare you tell me that it's sinful for me to to get rid of that? I I, I have a right to be happy. I have a right to my comfort. And if God is going to get in the way, uh, if your God is going to tell me that my being limited or made uncomfortable or inconvenienced is... If, if he's going to say anything, then, then he just needs to be put in his place. That's what our generation is telling us today. So if you're not feeling any of this in your life, I'd, I'd be really surprised. We're, we're all feeling this. And I think the scriptures are calling us to discern that voice as it competes with the voice of God and reject it. And say, that's, that's just not true. If the disciples who responded to the prophecy of Agabus, uh, if if they show us something about what not to do in response to God's word, they they're showing us this voice of comfort and how it can overpower God's voice, then I believe Paul's response to uh, the the revelation of God's will shows us that we're called to pursue His will, not just to resign ourselves to it, that that we lean in when God shows us something or calls us to something that might be difficult. We lean into it because we believe that his will is our best. That it's there that he reveals himself to us, there that he meets us, and it is good even when it's hard. So we're called to pursue God's will, not just resign ourselves to it. We need to start, though, with Paul's companions. They are this classic example of how not to respond to God's will. When they heard the word of the Lord, they were dead set against it, right? How do we prevent this from ever happening? How do we keep this from taking place? In verse 12, they urge Paul not to go. In verse 13, crying, pleading. The the, the Kleenex come, this comes out. They're, they're just pouring it on. Then in verse 14, it says... And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. This is obedience as a last resort. This is if everything doesn't work out and there's like no other way, we'll we'll just do what the Lord says. We'll we'll go with his plan. And I think we do this, right? Uh, When I was in Japan, I was uh, responsible for many uh, missionary applicants, people who were... Trying to discern God's will, thinking, "Oh, maybe I, I, I might feel God calling me to uh, serve as a missionary in Japan." And I, I remember one individual who had just over a period of many months—it was over a year at that point—but asking questions and 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 kept on asking. And at a certain point, I said, "You know, where are you at in your uh, in your discerning of God's will for your life, and whether you feel God is calling you to serve here in, in Japan?" And I always uh, was puzzled by his response. He said, well, it's either for me, it's either med school or missionary service. And he says, last time I wrote my MCATs, my scores were really low. So I'm, I don't think I'm, I'm not sure if I'm going to make it into med school. But I'm going to give it another try. And if I fail at that again, I think I'm going to become a missionary. And I always thought, ah. i'm not sure what to say to you right now but this just feels so wrong like this and not not that being a missionary is better than being a doctor or vice versa but if your understanding of how to discern god's will comes down to um this door is closed and this door is closed and this door is closed and god has kind of revealed this thing to me but uh, i'm going to make sure that there aren't any other options because this feels awfully unpleasant Uh, that, that surely isn't the way we're supposed to go about discerning God's will, right? Compare that to the way Paul responded to the will of God. In verse 13, he says, I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. There, there's no conflict in his thinking. He's not like, well, the voice of comfort is kind of leading me in this direction. Like, he is leaning in. He, he is seeking the will of the Lord. He believes that God's will is good, even if it's hard. He wasn't the only one, uh, Peter. Uh, Peter had experienced this. He, he, you know, Peter was the one who was so committed to comfort that he gave Jesus a sermon on it before he was uh, called Satan. But he wrote in 1 Peter 2.21, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his footsteps he realized it wasn't just Jesus that was called to obey God in the the face of the voice of comfort, but we're called to follow him, called to take up our cross and follow him. I believe what took place when Paul, I don't think this is just Paul is like, really a super guy and he's, he's just naturally courageous. I believe when Agabus revealed the will of the Lord to him and said he was going to go to Jerusalem and there he was going to be bound, he was going to face great hardship and difficulty, be imprisoned in Jerusalem, you know where I think his mind went to? I think he went back straight to Jesus. Jesus revealed several times to his disciples, "I'm heading to Jerusalem, and when I get there, I'm going to face imprisonment. I'm going to face great difficulty." In his case, he was going to face his death. Before being rebuked by Peter, Jesus warned the disciples he would be delivered to the chief priests and scribes three times. In Luke 9:51, it describes his attitude, though. It says... When the days drew near for him to be taken up he set his face to go to Jerusalem. That phrase set his face means he he strengthened his resolve. He, he it's it's like tightening up your body when you're when when you know that something is about to hit you, you do this. And and so when it says he set his face, he, he strengthened his posture. He 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 tensed up his his facial muscles. And, and it's a picture of Jesus leaning in. He knows it's going to be hard. He knows that he will be tempted to turn and run the other way. And he refuses to give in to that temptation. And so he leans in. He sets his face. And I believe Paul had that picture in his mind of Jesus setting his face to go to Jerusalem, knowing the, the suffering that he would face there, and, and knowing that because Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem, Paul had salvation. The, the, the people of God had forgiveness. And Paul said, if it's the will of God for me to go to Jerusalem like Jesus did, and for me to face that kind of uh, opposition and suffering the way Jesus did, then I'm going to lean in. I'm going to give myself to, uh, to that. Now, Alan Patton is uh, a person some of you may know, he's a, he's an auth- he was an author, uh, he was an, anti-ap- he was a, an apartheid, uh, anti-apartheid activist, um, but he wrote a novel in 1983 called, Ah, But Your Land is Beautiful. And in it, he tried to draw attention to uh, the great evil of apartheid and to draw attention to the uh, injustice of uh, racial, racial segregation in that nation. In the story he tells of a, a character called Robert Mansfield who was a headmaster of a school in South Africa and his school had to w- was was going to uh, play another school uh, in uh, in a competition but the laws and rules of racial segregation prevented that match from taking place. And Robert Mansfield decided he was going to take a stand. he had had enough, and for him, this was his breaking point. He decided that he would resign in pro- protest. But interestingly, as he did, and as he was about to, a friend of his came, a fellow colleague came and spoke what we would might call the voice of comfort. His friend said to, this to him, You know you will be wounded. Do you know that? To which Manfield points up to heaven and replies, When I go up there, the judge will say to me, Where are your wounds? If I say I haven't any, he will say, Was there nothing to fight for? And as I think of those words and, and, and the, the, the battle that they came from, it's, it, it, those words point me back to Scripture." and remind me that all of us as believers have a battle to fight for. We all have opportunities to lean in whether and whether that means taking uh, the wounds or not. We all have an opportunity to respond when we would rather run, when we would rather hide. We have a resp- we don't need to get into battles over the petty things that we would like to argue about in our flesh, but we do have a responsibility to lean in when it concerns the will of God and the purposes of God in this world and to lean in the way Jesus leaned in when he set his face to go to Jerusalem, to die the death that would secure our life and to face the cross and to bear its penalty that we might be freed from sin's penalty. Let's follow him even as he took his cross. Let us take up our cross where he would lead us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we admit that the voice of comfort is often so loud in our hearts that we don't hear anything else. It makes us difficult, frankly, to hear what you say. And the truth is, we like what that voice says. Would you forgive us for being too cowardly to hear you? Forgive us for being too selfish to listen. Help us to follow Jesus who set his face toward Jerusalem for our sakes. And help us to pursue your will, no matter what the obstacles before us. For we ask you in Jesus' name. Amen.